This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers. And today, I have a very special treat. Our guest is a gentleman by the name of David McCloskey. David is a former uh, CIA analyst and a former consultant with McKinsey & Company. Uh, he worked for a number of years uh, writing for the President's Daily Brief. He has given classified testimony to congressional oversight committees and briefed senior White House officials, military officers, and Arab royalty. He has also served in a number of CIA stations across the Middle East, and he holds a master's degree in energy policy and legal studies from Johns Hopkins SICE. David, welcome to AFIO Now. Jim, thanks for having me. Great to be here. David, uh, you've got a new book out called Damascus Station, which certainly resonates, and it's a fiction. What's it about, and why did you decide to write it? Yeah, well, I um, again, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to be here uh, talking with you today. Um, you know, this book, uh, this book is a, it's a spy novel. It's set in Syria uh, during the, the civil war in the early years of it. Um, it is about a CIA case officer and his Syrian recruit who uh, who break one of the cardinal rules uh, and fall into a forbidden relationship. Um, they go into Damascus uh, to actually try to track down the killer of another case officer. Um, and as they do that, the kind of tension and conflict in their relationship uh, you know, comes to a head um, and they stumble upon a very dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. Uh, and it's really a book about betrayal and love and loyalty and uh, and what it means to to be human in the midst of a, a really nasty conflict. Um, so hopefully there's a lot to lots of like for everybody. David, I understand the book um, paints a very vivid picture of the Syrian civil war. Tell us how it uh, parallels uh, actual fact. Yeah, well, I am. Um, so it covers, I'd say, at a high level, and I'm trying to I'll, I'll try to cover this without spoiling anything, because there are some links that would give away some fun parts of the plot that I don't I don't want to do. Um, but broadly, I really tried to cover the first couple years of the war uh, insofar as I could in kind of a realistic way. So from about. 2011, when the unrest started, to about 2013, I'd say the book really tries to paint a picture. And again, it's fiction, so you know there's some creative liberties and some counterfactual uh, events that happen in there that didn't actually occur in the real war. But I really do try to paint a picture of what the war was like at that point in time, what the unrest was like at that point in time, uh, and what it felt like to be there uh, more than anything at a high level. And then you know as I kind of drilled in. I mean, one of the things that I had fun doing, just because I watched this conflict so closely when I was a uh, CIA analyst, I did try to sprinkle in some events, again, as much as I could, realistically, that actually happened. Um, so without giving too much away, you know, there's a scene in my book where there is a, a protest, a mob outside the U.S. Embassy in Damascus, um, and they end up throwing fruit over the side, rotten fruit and breaking the air conditioner and jumping in and taking the flag down. And it's a pretty, you know, somewhat dramatic scene for some of our main characters. Uh, that actually happened uh, in July of 2011. There was a, a pro-regime mob that 
overran the U.S. embassy in Damascus. And, you know, it's the middle of summer and in Damascus, it was quite hot. They threw a bunch of rotten fruit in. They did break the air conditioner, um, you know, much to the consternation of everyone in the embassy. Uh, so that actually occurred. <clears throat> um, there's also a, uh, a chemical attack in the book, um, which, you know, has sort of all too unfortunate precedent on the Syrian battlefield in the middle of that war. Um, there have been hundreds of, of attacks, most of them perpetrated by the regime, uh, using sarin and other chemicals against the, the opposition. So there's some real things that happened. There's also a couple more, I would say, uh, in the book that I don't want to give away because I think it'd be, uh, be robbing the readers of some of the fun as they get toward the end of the novel. But I did try to sprinkle in kind of a, a mashup of some of the key events that, uh, that occurred in the book, um, in, you know, or that occurred in the war. Uh, especially in those first two years. Now, you're a former analyst, um, but your protagonist in the book is a case officer. What are the challenges to you to write from that perspective? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Jack Ryan is a CIA analyst. And so when I was, you know, initially thinking about the book, I said, well, that's not, you know, that wouldn't be the worst template. But of course, none of what he does resembles anything uh, an analyst does, much less a CIA officer. So I had to throw that aside pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I will say I'm not a case officer, but I have observed them in their natural habitat for some time. And I had the assistance of a number of case officers over the course of writing the book to help me understand, you know, what's the job like? What do you actually do? Um, what does it feel like to do the work, um, you know, from a emotional or biological standpoint? You know, kind of what's the what's the character like? Um and I'll say, Jim, that it was pretty interesting just to have some of these conversations and reflect on it over the course of writing. I feel like I learned a lot more about what the other side of the house uh, does and did than I ever really knew as an analyst uh, during my time. Um, it, it was very interesting. I uh, I also would say that I so you know I, I initially kind of felt to the point of your question felt a little bit uncomfortable writing from that standpoint because I knew that. If I didn't get, and I'm sure I'll, you know, get some of this mail anyway, but I knew that if I didn't get it quite right, I was going to hear about it. Um, but I felt like there were so many very interesting aspects of that job that are very underplayed, if just totally non-existent in the spy fiction that's out there today. Uh, and so much drama, um, you know, there's the case officers aren't the superhero spies of Hollywood, but there's so much drama in the work and in the human relationships and in the nature of what it means to recruit somebody, what it means to, you know, have that kind of intimate relationship with someone who's spying um, that I thought there was, there was a lot to work with there. And I really wanted to kind of make that my, you know, the protagonist of my book. I felt like there was a lot of material. And as I understand it, um, you actually were embedded in a number of CIA field stations in the Middle East. So presumably um, some of what the case officers were doing also rubbed off on you. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And just kind of seeing, um, you know, it, it made the book because I had I had lived it or at least been close enough to it to watch some of it. Um, I was able to, I, I hope, bring some level of authenticity and reality to it that's also entertaining, which uh, which which was fun. You were working as a CIA analyst on the Middle East during the Arab Awakening. What was that like? 
Yeah. Um, oh, I would say it was probably the most um, impactful and interesting thing that I've done as a, as a professional, uh, maybe up until releasing this book. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun um, and it was very interesting and it felt like, um, you know, a time when you're kind of living or, or, or you're, you're watching something that you look back on years later and you know, it's going to be a, a big deal. You're kind of living history in some respects, even if you're, you know, watching it from, from Langley or from a, from a CIA station. Um, I, I'll say that uh, as an analyst, it felt like a particularly tough set of you know problems to look at because there were so many different it was particularly in early 2011 and late 2010 in the region things were moving so quickly and you got the sense that um maybe in a similar way to the the fall of the wall um and the collapse of communism across communist regimes across eastern europe that you were kind of watching these structures that seemed like they could just kind of go on forever um, pretty quickly, you know, collapse or weaken to a point where they weren't going to be credible any longer. And, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations internally about, you know, well, what's going to happen next and what are the different scenarios and all of that. But I think it w one of the most interesting things to watch was to kind of get a sense that like people, there was all of a sudden this kind of I guess the mindset was shifting across the region very rapidly. Um, and I remember being in the Middle East, actually, in um, I was on TDY in February of 2011 um, during the, the night when Mubarak regime sent the, you know, the thugs in on camels through Tahrir Square. And I remember watching that at a, at a restaurant in another Middle Eastern capital and kind of watching the, the people there process this. Um, and you, you got the sense that two months earlier, no one would have thought that was possible. And now everyone was watching this kind of stuff happening and realizing that, well, you know, maybe it wasn't possible two months ago, but it actually is possible now. And so you were kind of riding this wave at that time of, um, you know, things that, that were unrealistic a few months earlier were now all of a sudden possible. And uh, and it made it really hard as an analyst, I think, also to to put together a credible product for U.S. policymakers, because we were also sort of getting, I think, to the limits of I'd almost say the limits of human cognition and what you can really predict, um, because things were changing so rapidly in between people's ears, you know, in their brains. And uh, and that was catapulting events forward at a, at a tremendous pace. You know, so we I remember. You know, we kind of were looking at the Assad regime at that time and, you know, looking at the typical kind of analysis that you do around what pillars support them and keep them in power and all that. And kind of thinking, well, they're, you know, they got a lot to pull on. Um, and, uh, and, you know, sure enough, the perception among many people in the population had changed about what was possible. And so, you know, you got a protest movement that erupted just a, you know, a few weeks later uh, that I think we saw coming maybe strategically, but certainly, um, you know, had no sense of, of how soon it would hit or how widespread it would become. As um, some of our viewers may know, um, it was my privilege to serve as the chief of CIA's Near East and South Asia Division in the early 2000s. And this was a time when 
you know, cable news and cell phones and internet were really just starting to have an impact on a lot of those um, rather conservative uh, Middle Eastern countries. And they still had pretty heavy censorship in place on radio, television, newspapers, and pretty good population control. But I recall in the early 2000s, more than one chief of uh, security in an Arab country telling me how challenged they already were because anti-regime um, groups were organizing events using the internet and cell phones and then taking pictures of the events with cell phones and sending them to um, um, Arab news services. So it was a whole new set of challenges for them that they never had had to face before, and they weren't doing a very good job of uh, meeting the challenge. Right. No, and I think, I mean, in Syria, they had it features in some of the commentary on it, but I think it's sort of been lost to the mists of what's happened over the past 10 years, but they got rocked by a horrible drought um, for a lot of the mid-2000s that moved huge numbers of people, I think hundreds of thousands from kind of the east and the northeast into these areas around the cities. Uh, and these were very, um, tended to be kind of conservative practicing Sunni Muslims um, that that moved into these areas. And it was a, you had a youth bulge at the same time. You had, you know, government sort of, that doesn't have a lot of natural resources in Syria. They don't have oil wealth to spread around, struggling with how to manage sort of the socioeconomic distress that was kind of bubbling up. There were a lot of sort of big warning, you know, lights that were flashing, I would say, but, um, you know, it's kind of, they've been pretty good at keeping it largely under control and in co-opting huge number, you know, wealthy families, uh, different tribes. I mean, they've kind of done a good job knitting together a support structure for the government that when you pair it with the repressive apparatus, which was very effective at, at dealing out terror, that, uh, you know, it had held kind of, they'd been able to hold it together until they weren't, you know, and then and, and the cat was out of the bag. So one of your areas of specific focus during your time as an analyst was on Syria and Lebanon. What are the lessons learned for us in the U.S. Uh, on um, how we dealt with that series of challenges um, presented to us by the uh, Syrian civil war? You know, I remember even thinking at the time as an analyst that I wasn't sure I wanted to trade out my position for any actual policymaking role inside the you know Obama administration because the choices were pretty rough, uh, and and I don't have any uh, envy for the position that they were in you know, particularly early on as they were trying to think through how to respond to this, because it was, um, there weren't a lot of good choices to, to be made even early on uh, in, in, the, in the unrest and the conflict. You know, I think, I think one of the things that we probably could have done better at was we were pretty over our skis, I think, rhetorically. Uh, when we look at, you know, what we said about Assad stepping aside and certainly the red line around the use of chemical weapons comes to mind that ended up being unenforced. I think there were some, you know, there was a bit of a disconnect, not a bit, there was a disconnect between what we were sort of able and willing to do uh, to affect change on the ground in Syria throughout the, the conflict, really, and really in the early years in particular, up until, um, you know, the ISIS blitzkrieg in, in 2014 that kind of changed the nature of the way we looked at Syria. But, uh, you know, we were we were hesitant to do much, but we were we were kind of talking a big game. And I think that, you know, that wasn't uh, 
that wasn't maliciously done. I think the kind of almost original sin of a lot of this was a perception early on. Um, it was hard to fight because if you think, you know, the, um, the perception early on was that the fall was inevitable. Uh, and it was just kind of a matter of when Assad went, you know, whether it be six months or whether it be nine months, you know, he was going to, the regime was going to collapse. It just kind of had to. And I think there was a lot of, uh, it, it was easy to fall into that mindset because you looked at what was happening in the region, particularly in 2011. And you said, you know, Gaddafi's gone, Saleh and Yemen's tottering, Ben Ali's gone, Mubarak's gone. You know, you kind of had this sense of, man, these guys are just being shown the door left and right. And, uh, and it, you know, Assad, well, he'll, it might be a little bit bloodier, might be a little bit more problematic to get him out, but it'll happen. And uh, I think we underestimated the regime's kind of tenacity uh, and, and, frankly, even some of the, the level of support that it had, uh, that it had built up among its, among its base in Syria and the foreign partners that it had. So there was an underestimation, I think, that, that grew out of the sense that, well, it's just sort of a historical inevitability that, that led to some of these, um, I think, rhetorical missteps throughout the conflict. Uh, particularly early on. So I think, you know, there there weren't, you know, and I, I'd be hesitant to say there was any kind of good decision to be made. I think we didn't do ourselves any favors by by taking a bit, you know, a bit of a rosy view toward the, the inevitability of his decline. Well, it's been a number of years since I um, dealt with things uh, Syrian, but I must say I was always convinced that the um, Alawis who control Syria were very, very well entrenched and basically had a death grip on the country and would go down fighting to the last Sunni and Kurd. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even when regime came changed, I feared and I fear that there will be a lot of re revenge taking and score settling once the regime falls, because it's been a long, long time, almost 50 years, and um, there are a lot of scores to settle. No, oh, absolutely. And I, I think that that I'm not sure if it's uniquely hard for us as Americans, but I think it's hard to understand. We certainly tried to spend a lot of time understanding that that Alawi mindset around controlling, uh, you know, most of the senior positions and even the mid-level positions in the security services and, and most of the senior ones that matter in the military. And you're staffing most of the, uh, you know, sort of unofficial official militias that sprung up over the course of the conflict, the views of that community matter a lot. And are, and are they willing, do they see a future or a bridge to something else with, uh, with a you know, non-Assad government? And one of the really nasty things about this conflict was, of course, that that community was both legitimately afraid of retribution, uh, you know, for a lot of good reasons that are deep, you know, pretty deep in history, but also not so deep in history. I mean, they have remembrances of uh, the last kind of uprising from the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 70s and early 80s that, that where that, that, you know, the, the Muslim Brotherhood targeted the Alawis, uh, you know, for, for assassinations and political score settling and all that. The other thing that was pretty remarkable to see and, and was that the regime, you know, of course, fed that fear by doing things like releasing, you know, jihadist prisoners <laughs> to kind of create a pretty nasty, you know, would feed a nasty and sectarian kind of Sunni side to this thing that would further, you know, entrench their own supporters with them. So it was, it, you know, there's some managed it both ways, but the, 
the net result was that you had a community that was probably around 10% of Syria's population, so several million people who are pretty geographically concentrated. They're in the cities, they're tied to the regime, and they don't see any future within, with any other type of government um, or type of regime other than the one they've got. And so they're willing to do a lot to you know, maintain the status quo. So what are the takeaways that you'd like your um, readers to um, take away from the new book? Well, I think the number one thing is I want them to keep flipping the pages. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a spy thriller. Uh, so I want people to, you know, be vested in the story and the characters and, to you know, stay up too late reading, um, put off family and work obligations to do so. So that's one, but two, and more seriously, I do think I want people to come away with some sense. And again, this is a, this is a novel, right? So I have taken creative license, um, breaches of trade crafts and all that are my own. So I accept that. Uh, you know, in the spirit of of crafting a, a good spy yarn. I think I would like people to come away with some better sense of what the CIA actually does and what it's like to to work there. Again, like like I said earlier, Jim, I think there's a ton of spy stuff out there that's loads of fun and that, you know, stars CIA, you know, black ops officers and assassins and all this kind of stuff that that doesn't really get you close to the heart and soul of the place. And, and I hope that this book does in some respect so that it brings people into the, the CIA. And then I also hope that it it does create some kind of window into the into the Syrian conflict and, and helps to, I think, maybe to even humanize the different sides of it. Not not in a way of saying that they're all sort of equal morally, because I think the book does. The book clearly has good guys and bad guys in it, but understand the real decisions that are made in the midst of a conflict like the one that we uh, have in Syria, and to kind of relate to people who are trying to navigate pretty tough, pretty tough situation. So flip the pages first, but I think those other two things were, were also in my mind as I was writing it. I understand you have other uh, projects in store. Uh, what are you working on? Is there another novel out there? Yeah. So I am. Uh, I am probably about two thirds of the way through another book. Uh, it's not Syria focused. It's not Middle East focused. It, it is a spy novel. I have been kind of beating my head against the wall with this one. Uh, it's it's Russia focused. And for a long time, I've been trying to see if I could set a, you know, kind of Russia focused spy novel in the heart of the Big Bend country in Texas, which is down near the uh, down near the Mexican border. I, I have to admit, you know, as I say it out loud, it, it's been tough to get a U.S.-Russia spy novel fully set inside West Texas. So I've been I've been dealing with that and struggling with that. It's uh, it is a it's a U.S.-Russia you know kind of spy novel that focuses on the conflict between the CIA and SVR and the GRU. Uh, and I'm I'm getting pretty close to wrapping you know, at least the first draft of that one. So that's that's top of mind for me. Well, the name of the new book is Damascus Station. Sounds like a riveting topic. I <laughs> uh, can't wait for it to come out. When is it on uh, bookshelves? Uh, so it, it, it'll be available anywhere books are sold on October 5th. Um, but it can be pre-ordered now on, you know, Amazon anywhere, uh, IndieBound, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, you name it. Um, so, you know, get your copy early, early and often, I would say. Well, David, thank you very much. I'm sure our audience will find it uh, a fascinating read. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate you having me. 